Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. One of the most provocative voices on the Republican right is Eric Erickson, uh, the uh, former editor of Red State, the host of the Eric Erickson radio show, and the author of You Will Be Made to Care, a new book uh, out uh, just now. Uh, I sat down with him the other day to talk about Donald Trump, who he does not like, the conservative movement for which he fears, uh, and the Supreme Court, which he likes just the way it is right now, four to four, with no presidential appointment. Direct from Macon, Georgia, Eric Erickson. I like saying that because it reminds me of the Allman Brothers. Multiple my, people have said that today. <laughs> yes, the the Allman Brothers band, my, one of my, my favorite band when I was growing up. So they're not there anymore, right? One of the brothers is still around. They preserved the big house. It's now a museum. Uh huh. And have you been over there? I haven't actually. Uh, been to their too favorite young. restaurant. You're too young to appreciate True. the Almond Brothers. <laughs> so you're, but you're not a Georgian uh, by birth. You're you, you start in Louisiana, right? I my dad actually is a Swede who was born of all places in Coral Gables, Florida. Met my mom at college and moved back to Louisiana with her when they got married. When I was five, we moved to Dubai, moved back to Louisiana when I was 15, and then I escaped to college after the Edwin Edwards-David Duke race. All right, so there's a lot to unpack there. First of, <laughs> first of all, the fact that your dad's a Swede makes perfect sense now with the Eric Erickson yes. thing. So it's not a made-up name. No, it, it is not. Not a stage name. You would be amazed at the people who think it is, but it's actually my dad, his dad, his dad, and it goes all the way back. Yeah, you got the coloring uh, as well. Yeah, very so. much so. The sun sees me and I fry. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, so you grew up in Louisiana. We'll get back to Louisiana because uh, some colorful politics oh, down yes. there. But uh, ten years in Dubai. Uh, what 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 was that like? It was a really fun experience. Um, so we would come home during the summer for a couple of months, but mostly we were in Dubai. And because we were Americans, our visas expired every three months. And my dad's company, he was an oil field production foreman, and they would send us to a different country every three months. And uh, our school went up to ninth grade, and in ninth grade, you took a class trip by taking out a map of the Eastern Hemisphere, throwing a dart, and wherever it landed, you went for two weeks. And ours landed in the Aegean, so my ninth grade year, I spent two weeks going from Turkey to Greece and got to say, I was a Greek mythology, but I still am a total Greek mythology nerd, and going to Delphi and to Sparta and, and to, um, uh, to, to Athens, and just, it was a fantastic trip. It was a great way to grow up. Yeah, well, what'd you learn from that? Oh, uh, gosh, um, that we're not alone in the world, I guess, usually. That's my, my typical response when people ask me about that. I mean, most people, I, I think, people in politics get caricatures of themselves. And I'm the, the redneck from middle Georgia and actually spent most of my life overseas. And none of my southern friends think I have a southern accent as a result still. Uh, but just the, the internationalism of it and how much there are similarities around the world. And, I mean, I grew up eating gumbo and curry and here. And, I mean, it's just it's a different way to think about life. But at the same time, there's kind of a regret in the way that I've got a 10-year-old daughter and a 7-year-old son, and I don't know that they'll ever experience all the things that I've experienced or seen the things that I've seen. You were in a pretty volatile region uh, there. Did, did it give you special insight into what's going on today? I think to some degree. I, I remember in ninth grade, my dad's oil platform uh, was surrounded by Iranians. They had to evacuate. The platform near his got blown up. Uh, we could hear the explosions from our school. We could see jets flying over and tanks rolling down the street. Uh, when we flew back from Greece, actually, we stopped over in Kuwait in ninth grade, and you could see... Uh, the, the Iranian or the Iraqi army lining up in formation. You could just make out little tanks as you were landing in Kuwait City on the border. It's not that far. 
And this is in the, in the, 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 the run-up, yeah, yeah, to the uh, run-up to the original Gulf yeah. War in nineteen ninety yeah. January ninety one. Um, and so, yeah, you, you understand our school several times was evacuated because of bombs planted by terrorists. Um, Hezbollah took advantage of one one time. Hamas was just getting started. The Iranians hated us. Uh, when we went places, we told people we were Swedish instead of American oftentimes. Um, but at the same time, you also understood there was a profound appreciation in much of the world for the United States. Mm-hmm. And um, in terms of... Uh the debate about what our roles should be in the world. How did that experience shape shape that? That we don't necessarily need to be a police officer in the world, but we certainly need to play a large role in the world. Um, the the way the world was structured post World War II, the United States was kind of set up by the Allied powers as a keystone, and arches crumble when the keystone goes away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We'll 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 get back to that. So you you came back to the states and you moved to Louisiana. Uh, back to Louisiana. Yes. Yeah, and uh, that was in the Edward Ed, Edwin Edwards <laughs> yes. era. Well, one of the many Edwin Edwards eras yes. of Louisiana politics. And in fact, that was kind of my deciding moment to leave Louisiana when all my friends were going to LSU was the Edwin Edwards David Duke race, and I think ninety one, where my parents, proud Republicans, put the bumper sticker on the back of their car: "Vote for the crook. It's important." <laughs> Did you? So you grew up in a political household. Yeah, fairly well. I, I've told the story before that when we moved to Dubai, you took two shipments, uh, one by air, one by sea. You put your essentials in the air cargo, and it came a week after you got to Dubai. And the shipment, the sea shipment came six months later. My parents got things mixed up. They were not necessarily, they were actually registered Democrats, but they were conservative. And so all of my kids' books actually wound up in the sea cargo. So I grew up, my bedtime stories were William F. Buckley columns in National Review. Really? That must have put you to sleep. Yeah, very much so. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Did uh, uh, so they 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 had a conservative uh, perspective. So you come back to Louisiana, right. um, and uh, was it your notion to get active in politics? No, not really. I, I mean, I. I I did get active in politics. The local congressman, Clyde Holloway, had an office. I lived in very rural Louisiana. Uh, Culture shock is living in Dubai for 10 years and moving back to a town so small, they literally got rid of the stoplight in the 70s because it scared the horses. (laughs) Uh, Tiny town. If you counted the mental hospital patients and prisoners, you had 2,000 people in the town. And my grandfather in World War II had been mayor, but we weren't really a super political household. But politics, when we, I grew up in Dubai, in eighth grade, that was the 1988 election, and every, the entire school was transformed into elections. And the first graders had political projects. This was an American school. This was an American school. It was a well-regarded American school. Anyone could come, but it was all the oil companies that pulled their money to start it. The Jumeirah American School, now the American School in Dubai. And so you had to pick sides. I wound up picking the Republican side and I wound up playing. Uh, I think I, I played Dan Quayle actually in the mock debate. I did spell potato right. Uh, but it just, it was kind of our connection to American culture. We, we didn't really have football. I mean, it got to 120 degrees. You weren't playing football outside. We had a football team. I didn't play it. Um, so, but politics kind of became my connection to the states and came home, went to Mercer University, started the College Republicans there in 94 and started working for a guy in the 94 wave, Saxby Chambliss, who went on to get elected mm-hmm. and wanted to go to Washington and be in politics. And he said, I should go to law school because that was the MBA of politics. And I'm still paying for that decision, but it's yeah. kind of worked out. Yeah, you should ask him to yeah <laughs> to rethink that for you but um uh and 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 how uh, just one more question on the dubai experience culturally uh obviously you're in an american school but you you were aware of the community and so on <laughs> my best friends were indian and pakistani so i got to have two birthdays because the indian friends wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't come when the pakistani was back versa yes yeah. um i mean i had friends from china and friends from sweden and friends from canada uh i had more friends from other countries than from this country so um i don't want to jump ahead to uh uh our friend donald trump but <laughs> when the notion came up about uh, uh about banning muslims from uh, entering the country. I, what, did, what was your reaction to that? It was a dumb decision. I mean, I, I get the reaction to it, and I think we could do a better job of, of restricting the flow into this country and, and beefing up security and, and uh, investigations. But 
none of my Muslim friends agree with ISIS. Uh, they all hate ISIS. And I, I mean, I just was appalled by Trump's decision to say that because it, it, well, one of the things well, it was I've pretty learned, popular. You oh, saw yeah. the polls. Oh yeah, very much. But it was it was popular, uh, and it's just one of those reminders of how quickly we forget our role in the world, and and so much for being the last best hope of mankind. Well, yes, unless you have this religion or this skin color, and I just it it, it was just a weird reaction from so many friends of mine to find myself on the opposite side of them, just knowing the situation. I I I, I have plenty of Muslim friends. Would you have been? Uh, would you have had the same view, do you think, had you not spent those 10 years over there? Probably not, actually. Um, judging just by friends of mine who never did have that upbringing, probably not. It, it's the great unknown. So you got out of law school. You, you, you actually, and you stayed in uh, Macon. I did, got married and stayed in Georgia. And ran for office. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> not only that, but one, which made it even you know, more here unfortunate. Here in Chicago, we consider the you know city council as uh, among the highest offices in the land, <laughs> and then you work your way down to like senator and congressman. Right. So, uh, so and eventually to jail, I hear. Well, that's a different. <laughs> that's a whole. Di- that's a whole different story. That's a whole nother show. <laughs> but uh, but you. Uh, uh, so, so tell me about that experience. Uh, so I, I practiced law for six years. Uh, what kind of law did you? Mostly corporate transactions. I, I did a lot of stuff. Um, I actually did a lot of indigent criminal defense. Um, we were required to in the county that I worked in once we had a law school to do five years of indigent defense, which was an eye-opening experience. Uh, but I wound up doing a lot of corporate law and elections. I was in a... Why, why was that an eye-opening experience? Well, it, I mean, one, understanding that I'm their lawyer. Um, God help them. <laughs> uh, I managed to get so everybody there, pleading there went, out of jail. There went, there went the uh, concept of equal justice. Yes, huh? exactly. It, it really did. Uh, understanding that, I mean, we finally were able to get a, a indigent defense office, but having to, one, force a lawyer who doesn't want to do criminal law, doesn't like it to do it. But then the real tragedy of it and, and just the absolute collapse of it. I would say before I started doing indigent defense, I was very much... You're selling drugs, throw away the key, bury you under the jail. Uh, and afterwards came away with it is these are people who could be productive members of society if you just got them some help. Uh, we don't necessarily need to spend so much money on jail as we could spending it on rehab. So we've got this debate going right now on criminal justice reform. Yeah, I've, like- I've saw, signed on to the uh, criminal justice reform. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, and part just the over-criminalization in the country. Uh, and I think both parties have done a very bad job from business regulations to uh, civil law over-criminalizing everything. I mean, when we have that many books in the U.S. Code, to say that a citizen actually has, should know the law, I, I don't think you can. we can do that anymore. Um, whether it's a business regulation that has become criminalized or whether it's some of the, the silly criminal laws in the, in the nation or the 50 states. There's some ridiculous criminal laws in the states. Yeah, although the, these, these things are now part of what's going on, I guess, in D.C. is that this the, the 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 sort of white collar debate and the and the criminal debate the the sort of violent or or uh, you know non corporate criminal debate is have gotten intertwined and that's right. created some um, some friction but <clears throat> you emerge from that experience with more solicitude for people who get in trouble yeah you know. My last case, see if I can do this, because I, I rarely can tell the story without crying to some degree. The last case that I had, indigent defense case, was a lady who was absolutely addicted to drugs and alcohol and had liver failure and was in jail. And my entire job was to get her out of jail before Christmas in 2005 so she could die at home and was successful. And I never wanted to deal with that again. Uh, an emotionally draining experience. But here was a woman who had a life ahead of her, got addicted to drugs and alcohol, and died, uh, and spent most of her time in jail and yellow because of liver failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, when had she, the state, saved money by helping her with treatment, they would have a productive member of society, a daughter would have a mother. And a parent would have a child. So this is an interesting discussion because um, I, I quite agree with you. Um, 
it's penny. It not only is it more humane, but it's it's right. penny wise and pound foolish to criminalize everything, not give people, especially people who aren't involved in nonviolent kinds of crimes like this woman mm-hmm. uh, was. Um, but uh, the notion of extending help to people implies that you see that there's some sort of governmental role for that. I think there is. I mean, I'm a conservative. I'm not a libertarian. I think there is a social safety net. Um, There are people who can't help themselves. Uh, I I think the transition from the FDR language of the deserving poor to Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, where if you're poor, everyone can be helped, uh, was a mistake in the country. And I think that's where a conservative dividing line is. But there are people in this country who, through no fault of their own, or in some cases because they made a mistake— do need help. Uh, and if they don't have a church and they don't have a family, then it's all of us who in some way need to help them get back into society and be a productive member of society. I want to point out that this siren in the background is not sound effects for this discussion on They're this particular to topic. <laughs> no, this is, it, this is just natural ambience as we tape this, uh, as we record this in the city of, uh, in the city of Chicago. Um, so so let's pick up your narrative. Um, you uh, so you you did your you did your time in law, and then you did your time in the city council of Macon. Yes, I so I, I left my practice of law. Um, actually, had a lawyer come in one day. MSNBC in two thousand four asked me to come up and blog the election for him in two thousand four. One of the senior partners of the firm came in. He said, "Do you know what the definition of a dumbass is?" I said, "No." He said, "You go do politics." And I found a way to get out of it. And then two years later, had you were up, you already writing for Red State? How did it? Yeah, I was you? already writing for Red State and had slowly evolved into the position of editor of the site by mm-hmm. 2005. And it it just it it really took off. We started putting ads on the site, and the site could pay for itself for a time. Uh, in 2000, into 2006, we sold Red State to a company, Eagle Publishing, in D.C. And in 2007, I wound up on city council in Macon. Now. Macon was the only city in Georgia that had a partisan city council. It had the second largest city council in Georgia, though it was by no means the largest city. I was one of two Republicans, but had run campaigns before and helped eight Democrats get elected to the city council and wound up getting the second most powerful committee chairmanship just by having gotten those eight people elected. They show their gratitude. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And what did you what did you learn from that experience? Uh, that there isn't a Republican or a Democratic position to trash election. Uh, people want to make everything partisan, and there actually are some issues that aren't partisan. They may be ideological. Do you privatize the trash department or not? But they aren't partisan. And at local politics, it really is where things get real. Uh, one of the examples I give that always blows my conservative friends' minds is we learned that we could save money by funding a Booker T. Washington after school center. We called it, then by beefing up and paying overtime to police because we saw a trend after 3 p.m. juvenile crime escalates. Mm-hmm. So you have a big at-risk time, right? Three to six when parents. You, are so you fund an after-school center and you're not paying police overtime. You save money. You're scaring me, brother, because you're sounding <laughs> a little bit too much like me. But uh, so you, but you didn't serve on the city council in Macon for very long. You, yeah, it was three and a half of a four-year term. I, I uh, liberal critics of mine often compare me to Sarah Palin. I did serve on council longer than she served as governor. Um, I actually got a job. At, so I was. So you on, didn't leave by popular demand. No, um, I, I was. I said I was only going to serve one term. I didn't want to seek re-election. Uh, I, I didn't like the job. Honestly, there was no one there to fill my ward spot. So I ran for it. No one ran against me. Uh, so I wound up getting on there, had great relationships with the members of council, stayed in touch on the issues, uh, was able to play roles behind the scenes, but I was missing a lot of votes because I'd been hired by CNN. It was campaign season. I was traveling a lot and then got offered Herman Cain's job on the radio when he ran for president. And the condition was I had to leave the seat. And I mean, I had Less than you six months. You weren't the months. 999, the author of the 999. Thank God, no, no. Um, but I, I mean, I, I had to leave my position to take this job, which was a full-time job versus part-time city council. I had five months left on my term, so I told everyone goodbye and good riddance. <laughs> uh-huh. And how, uh, and how, how, how do you see your role now uh, as a as a radio host? Now you have a new. Uh, site you no longer are with Red Right. So in January, I started a site called theresurgent.com. Uh, one, because I, I the name of it, just I've really sensed this 
idea that conservatives in the country have kind of they've gotten depressed. They're coming out of anger from Barack Obama's election. They don't know what to do. And I, I between just Christian communities, people of faith, conservatives, just this idea of being resurgent. Um, but then also being able to write more about faith and politics and the interaction between the two. I have noticed on my side of the aisle a really unhealthy anger that's just been building. And I'm an evangelical Christian. I believe in a Savior. I believe in a last day. And I believe I'm on his winning team. And so I don't understand why people who share my worldview like that should be in a constant state of pissed offness of things. Uh, they really should be. I mean, there are things to be angry about, I think, policy wise. But I, this unhealthy level of anger, I mean, I took my daughter to our first shared music concert. I'd never been to a music concert before, and I took her in October to the Taylor Swift concert. The level of anger from conservatives online that I would go to Taylor Swift when didn't I know she was a liberal? Like, one, I don't know that she is, and two, who the hell cares? It's Taylor Swift. It was an awesome concert. I'd go again tomorrow. Um, but both sides have politicized everything. Mm-hmm. And so now my side, I, I write about cooking. I love to cook. Uh, I put up recipes. I talk about politics. I talk about religion. On that score, I, I, I just have to ask you, because I lived through the whole birther thing with the president. What was your... What was your view on that, especially having lived overseas? and We actually banned them from Red State. Uh, in, I guess, 2007, I put up a piece that got me death threats that if you believe that the president was a foreign-born Manchurian candidate, crypto-fascist Muslim, you weren't welcome at Red State and got rid of them. And to this day, still get angry emails from people. Yeah, did you lose a lot of listeners? There? No, actually, a lot, I didn't. Of, a lot, a, a lot, a lot of downloads. No, yeah. we didn't. Um, I lost some friends. Actually, um, actually, had someone move out of our church because I refused to concede that the birth certificate was photoshopped. So the uh, the this anger thing seems pretty pronounced right now. Yes, it does. And um, you know, you talk up your your site's called Resurgent, but this picture seems pretty confused. Um, you know, you've got a Republican Party that seems pretty divided. And you got a guy leading the Republican Party who plainly is not going to send right. you inauguration tickets. Yes, because you he's banned, not even a Republican. You banned him from your uh, convention. Why, why did you do that? Well, you know, I thought that— Talking about Donald Trump. Yeah, Donald Trump, yes. yes. When Donald he would insist Trump that we went say. on— it, there, There's actually more of a story to this than I think people know. Uh, so Donald Trump had the debate with Megyn Kelly where she asked him a very simple question. You said X, Y, and Z about women. How are you going to defend yourself from the war on women? And he went nuts over it. And the next day he went on TV and he started bashing Megyn Kelly. And by that Saturday night had gone on CNN with Don Lemon and said she was bleeding out of her eyes. She was bleeding out of her wherever. Right. Uh, or her whatever. And... I was at dinner with my family when he did it. I, I came back and was met with a horde of angry people saying, did you hear what Donald Trump said about Megyn Kelly? Suggestion she she was on her period when she said these things or when she asked this question. So I called the campaign and said, look, I got a problem. What did he say? And they denied that he said those words. So I sent him the transcript of it and it, that she was bleeding out of her wherever, not whatever. And then, they said, well, he was just trying to move Don Lemon along in the conversation. <laughs> so then I pulled up the video and watched the video and emailed him back. It's like, if you can't be honest about what he said and you're not going to apologize for it, you're just going to be a distraction to all the other candidates. I know Megan Kelly. She's a friend of mine. She didn't deserve this. You do work and on Fox. I do work on mm-hmm. Fox. And so I, I told him they weren't going to be welcome at the event. Um, so he took this the This was a red state kind of red convention. State. We, we did this annual gathering. We actually called it the gathering. It was just mm-hmm. conservatives who read the site. And we wound up having all the presidential candidates but Donald Trump come, who, by the way, wasn't invited to begin with. He invited himself. So we had to make room for him. And then this happened. Uh, and I just, to this day, still get angry emails, tweets, death threats for having uninvited him from the gathering. You, uh, you say he wasn't invited. Do you think he's a conservative? No. Oh, he's not a conservative. Uh, he, in 2010, funded Democrats against Tea Party uh, against the Tea Party. In 2012, he funded uh, establishment Republicans against the Tea Party. Uh, he's given more money to Hillary and Bill. He Clinton. would say, of course, I'm 
I've, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm a businessman. I fund everybody. Right. Well, y- y- funny enough you should say that because I don't see very many Republican contributions. And if he says, well, I live in New York, well, he's got plenty of resorts in Florida and Nevada and, and elsewhere. Uh, he has always been a Democrat until two years ago. He had the strange conversion. Uh, I've said recently that I don't think he had a road to Damascus conversion. I think he decided he wanted to date the preacher's daughter. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and yet, and yet... He and seems yet, poised to be right. the Republican nominee. It, there are a lot of people, I think, coming from outside the party to support him, but there are a lot of people in the party as well who think E.J. Dionne and I don't line up very well, but in his book, he put, I think he actually quoted me on this point, that the Republican Party has spent the last four years campaigning that we're going to hold the president accountable, we're going to stop his agenda, and we're going to defund Obamacare. And they have gotten many checks from many elderly people in this country on that agenda and knew they would never do those things, knew they would never defund Obamacare, and were perfectly happy to break those promises. At some point when you've spent really more than a decade going back into the Bush administration, breaking promises to people you had no intention of keeping, at some point, people just want to burn you down. So you think uh, that, um, just let's pause for a second. I don't want to get into a philosophical uh, discussion, because I really want to focus on where we are uh, right now. But you and I, we, we talked a little bit earlier. I talked to you about the fact that I have a child with a chronic medical condition. started when she was seven months old. Uh, I was a reporter at the time. Um, she uh, started having seizures, and the seizures never stopped for 19 years. And, um, and I almost went bankrupt because my insurance didn't cover her prescriptions, so it was a thousand dollars out of pocket each month, and I was making thirty-eight thousand dollars a year as a reporter, uh, and I couldn't move because she had a pre-existing condition, so I couldn't get other insurance. Um, that that does that can't to a guy who talks, and I thoroughly believe you who talks the way you do about the indigent and people who, through no fault of their own, find themselves in, 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 in deep straits. That can't, that can't be, can it? I mean, shouldn't we as a country do something about that? I think we should. Um, I don't think we should have done what the president did. I don't think we should have done the Affordable Care Act. I think there are other avenues that both parties should explore. Um, and, it, you know, the Republicans always bring up health savings accounts and, and what have you. There are roles to help people in your situation at your income level at at the time. But I don't believe that a one-size-fits-all government program is a solution. I think that we need to actually free up resources. We need to, to some degree, break down insurance. I actually do buy into the the car insurance analogy that we should actually have less insurance for things in this country to help bring down health care costs instead of government intervention to bring down health care costs. That's one of the complaints that the... uh people have about the Affordable Care Act is that the deductibles are too high, that, uh, you know, so right. uh, that would be the car analogy in, uh, in, in some ways. But we could have a whole, right. we could have a whole discussion just on that. Maybe we will sometime. Because I really, you know, it, it's concerning to me. I think this is a fundamental issue for people. And plainly, there are there are certain, the Affordable Care Act is far from perfect, and there may be better ideas. I just want to hear what they mm-hmm. they are. But we sh- let's let's get back to the, where where we are as a country right now. Um, and I understand because on the left there are people who are mad at Obama because right. he didn't go far because enough. he didn't go far right. enough. In fact, you're a lawyer. You're a you've you've studied the history Recovering of this lawyer. country. <laughs> well, we're gonna hang it on you anyway for purposes of this question. We the founding fathers started. They had a concept, and that concept was to create a system where if the country was divided, it would be difficult to move forward. Right. And we, we're in that place right now. And yet the way we're divided politically, uh, the, the, the thought of compromise is—and you, you've been critical of compromise at the right. time—enrages people. Mm-hmm. So how do you reconcile a system that's made to force compromise that— that we all revere, right? We all talk right. about the Constitution, the Founding Fathers, and the fact that we, we, you know, we have this this, this raging anger on, you know, the, on this on the different sides of the the fight. 
I, I would say a couple of things. Uh, probably more of a complex answer than you want, but one I, I always say that, that's right. that I asked you a five minute question. So <laughs> gridlock is is a feature of the system, not a bug. Uh, the founders did intend right. for it to be very difficult to yeah. get anything done. Right. And I think what the founders also did that we have lost sight of in this country is that they had a shared power system with limited powers to Washington. And because Washington has exceeded the bounds of the scope that the founders intended, uh, without amendment to be able to do so, that the fights in Washington become more overwhelming and more homogenized in a country that's not homogenized. And I think that the burden of a lot of decisions in the country have to be put back and given to the states and let each state decide. And, and uh, let people decide which states they're going to live in. Where, where kids, when they get out of college, where do I want to go to get a job? Uh, I think that we should not, as a country, rely on Washington for everything. Uh, and I think we rely on Washington too much because what people in California may want may not be what people in Georgia want or, and vice versa. And this this whole identity even goes to the Supreme Court on, on moral issues is to... We should agree that Washington has a role, but that the states should have the primary role. And well, the states certainly have uh, a pretty big role. All you have to do is spend time in California and spend right. time in Georgia. Oh, yeah, very much so. And you'll see that there's an entirely different approach. To California has, you know, its own approach to climate change so and an approach and to everything. Yes, right. So, but I still think that too much is done in Washington that Washington doesn't necessarily need to do, and that has made the fights bigger and more contentious. Um, it, it it just it comes into play with right now what the Republicans in particular are dealing with is there has been this growing caucus within the Republicans. I call them the Leave Me the Hell Alone Coalition that just want to be left alone and. Republicans in Washington, I mean, Eric Cantor was a good example of this, proposing more and more policies of what Washington is going to do for you, uh, when a lot of these people are saying, I don't want Washington to do anything for me. Yeah. But there's some things, of course, well... The, yeah, there are some things Washington, Washington has, to, has do. to do. But getting back to your party, um, in addition to giving money to Democrats, are there things that Trump has said and done in this campaign? I understand that he, you know, there's all kinds right. of video... Right. Well, you know, I mean, on, on stage in South Carolina, I, I'm a pro-life evangelical. For him to stand on stage in South Carolina and call Planned Parenthood a wonderful organization, I think was the the moment I said, I can't support this guy. Uh, and then to follow it up in the next question with the defense of Canadian-style health care, which I and every other Republican was fighting in, in 2009, 2010. Uh, and then on multiple occasions— yeah, <laughs> I, I say this as a liberal. I wish we were fighting for Canadian-style right. health care. We really weren't. We were fighting for a relatively uh, modest uh, uh, augmentation of the existing system. You know, 85% of Americans had health coverage. So. Right. But, but anyway, but, 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 but be Donald that as Trump it may. agreeing with Bernie Sanders on health care uh, and uh, calling Planned Parenthood wonderful, and then on multiple occasions but within— Planned Parenthood does stuff that you, your objection is the stuff that they do relative to abortion. You think obviates everything else that they yes. do on women's health. Yes. All right. Okay. Um, it, on multiple occasions, Donald Trump has contradicted himself within clauses of a single sentence on what he would do. I, so I don't think you can trust him. Uh, I don't think he really is a conservative. Uh, and then of course there there's the wall issue and his language and. This will out myself as squishy on the immigration issue, but I have a really hard time as a Christian telling someone who's been in this country for 40 years and their only egregious act was crossing illegally that it's time for you to go home uh, when they are more American than otherwise. Um, I just I, I find that the party of family is going to break families apart is offensive. But that's... But he's found an audience for that. Oh, yes, he has. Uh, he's found an audience of very angry people who feel like both parties have left them behind. Uh, and the weird thing about it is I have conversations with people all the time, even non-political people. And so few of us ever have regular interactions with Trump supporters, and they're clearly there. Um, and I, I'm becoming convinced that there are people who, I mean, they just, they've gone about their lives they're not political, and under the surface, they've just been seething about what they see both parties doing to the country. 
and they've become very angry. And at this point, they're making decisions based in anger and emotion rather than looking at this guy and saying, wait a second, he just contradicted himself from five seconds ago. Do you, um, you, you, one of the reasons that he is doing well, I mean, he tends to uh, perform in the 30 to 40 range, did a little better in Nevada. Right. It's a caucus, it's hard to judge. But uh, but there's been a crowded feel, mm-hmm. including a couple of guys who you've spoken highly of, Cruz right. and Rubio, two former Tea Party uh, candidates. Uh, is it time for one or the other of them to get out of this race? Whether it is or not, I don't think they're going to. Yes, I, I think that after Super Tuesday or the SEC primary, however you want to call it, on March 1st, one of them is going to have to go. Um, you know, the conventional wisdom I have found is often wrong. And it's often shaped by partisans. And the conventional wisdom right now is that Ted Cruz is the guy who's got to get out. Uh, but I think, in fact, a bunch of conservatives today just sort of hinted a bunch of guys who right. endorsed him. Yes. Probably said allies that. of yours on a lot of issues yes. said. If yeah, he I didn't was supposed w- to be in that group, by the way. I, I declined ultimately to be a part of that group. Um, I, they basically I, said if he didn't win the Texas primary, that yeah. was essentially what they were saying, that it, that he should get out of the and race. And I think that is fair. If Ted Cruz can't win Texas, then he does need to get out of the race. Uh, but a lot of the conventional wisdom that he needs to get out, I think, isn't premised in fact. I mean, he's doing better than Rubio in Florida right now. He's doing better even than Trump in California in the Republican primary right now. Uh, but Cruz should have been able to win evangelicals in South Carolina. With a, I mean, seventy-three percent of the vote were evangelicals. Uh, yes. How did he not win that primary? Part of it is I have I've come to the conclusion that like Catholic and Jew evangelical has become an ethnic identifier in a lot of cases, and so you have a lot of people who are culturally evangelical, uh, but not necessarily evangelical in the religious sense. Yeah, and I said on TV, the, I said on TV that night that uh, you can be evangelical and also be a textile worker who saw yes. your job shipped overseas and, so. and that economic uh, uh, impetus may be as important as anything else. Right. Uh, what I do think both parties have to recognize from Trump, I'm absolutely not going to vote for Donald Trump, even if he's the Republican nominee. But I think both parties have to recognize that there is a class would you, of You people. wouldn't vote for Hillary, would you? No, I'd find somebody to vote for, but I wouldn't vote for either one. Um, I said the other day, I'm not going to vote for the liberal who likes Planned Parenthood and universal health care, and I'm not going to vote for Hillary Clinton either. Um, <laughs> but there will be someone there I will vote for. Both parties need to recognize, though, there is an angry group of people who've been living in the shadows in this country who are hard workers, who don't feel like they have a representation in Washington, and that right now those people are speaking out. And neither party should misinterpret their concerns. And ironically, I think the Republican Party is going to be the one to most misunderstand the grievances. The issue of Rubio and Cruz in this race for president, um, it seems as if everyone has been working on the assumption that if they can only be the other candidate against Donald Trump, that they could win. And so everybody's been sort of pointing their guns at each other and not at Trump. Right. And that seems to be continuing to some degree uh, because there's a sense that either Cruz or Rubio can move forward. And then you have John Kasich sitting out there thinking he can win Michigan, Ohio, and he can survive. Um, What is the impetus for these guys to get out of the race? I don't know that there is an impetus for them to get out. And at this point, it's become ego. I mean, they have gotten along in the Senate for a very long time. And right now, I think they and their staffs hate each other. So there's no incentive for either to get out when they think the other guy should get out, which is essentially handing the race to Donald Trump. Uh, What do you think the odds that Trump will be the nominee as we sit here right now? At this point, probably 50-50. I hope not, but I I do think that you're going to see conservatives try to push Cruz out if he doesn't do well in tech. Even if he wins, but it's close, I think they'll probably start rallying around Rubio. But it may not come to that because you're already seeing in places that have been favorable to Cruz, like Oklahoma and, and Georgia, that suddenly Rubio's in second place. On my own radio show in Georgia, I have encouraged Georgia Republicans, whether they like Cruz or not, to side with Rubio at this point just to deny the delegates to Trump. And then in Alabama, where Cruz is in second place, for them, Rubio supporters to go to Cruz. Rubio has been depicted as the as the emerging establishment right. candidate. 
Do you see him that way? I was the first national conservative to endorse Rubio in, in February 3rd, 2009, when he was at 2% in the polls. Uh, said his race was a hill to die on against Charlie Crist, and we won. Uh, no, yes, he is, and no, he's not. Uh, he is a conservative. He's got a 95% Heritage Action for America rating. Uh, Rubio's problem is he promised everyone, myself included, that he would not do anything at all related to immigration uh, when he got into office, and he did. And so you got a lot of people who want they feel like he broke his promise. But then you do have a lot of protectionists within the Republican Party right now who consider it a betrayal, not just he did something wrong. You um, you yourself said a few minutes ago that you thought if someone's been here for a long right. time and they're a contributing member of the society that they shouldn't be uh, uh, deported. Uh, what offended you about what Rubio did? What offended me about what Rubio did is And we're talking about working with the Gang of Eight to try and pass an immigration reform. Was it working with the Gang of Eight that offended you? Yes, it was. Um, The plan itself, I think, probably could have been worked on, but it was that Rubio so explicitly told so many of us that he wouldn't do it. Now, I would back Marco Rubio in a heartbeat. I would support him for re-election. If he ran for governor, I'd support him. If he's the nominee, I'll support him. Uh, But he did tell everyone he wasn't going to do what he did. Um... I'm not going to burn a bridge with him, though, or burn him down for that, because I understood he felt like he could probably get something. Um, so, I, so I wouldn't say I was offended. A lot of my friends were offended. Uh, but he was trying to come to Washington and get something done. Uh, I think he, to a degree, got the rug pulled out by his own colleagues on the Republican side who wanted to go further than he did. But he's a good guy. I mean, I like Marco Rubio. I don't understand people who can look at Marco Rubio and say, this is an awful human being. Um uh, and what about Ted Cruz? People I, I, actually are saying some. There are people who do say he is an awful human. Yeah, the, being. there are. I, I get a lot of them. They say the same thing about others. Say the same thing about Cruz. I, I've known them both. I'm talking since, about Cruz now, right? Yeah. I've known them both since 2009. They both came to my very first red state gathering in 2009. They're both friends of mine. Uh, I, I know them, know their families, and they're good guys. Uh, Cruz isn't a liar. He's not a bad guy. Uh, but he's pissed off a lot of people in Washington, D.C. who hate him because of it. Uh, but that's made the base like him. Mm-hmm. But not enough to overcome right. Trump. Not enough to overcome Trump. That is the craziest thing. I mean, in any other election dynamic, Cruz would be the guy the outsiders are going to. But with Trump in the race, not so much. Uh, Mitt Romney uh said uh, as on the day on which we're recording this that uh, kind of ironic that yes. uh, that Trump should uh, disclose his income taxes and he said he he felt there was a bombshell in there he said they all should right uh, what's your what was your view of that master trolling by Mitt Romney uh, given his own income tax issue in 2012 uh, very clear he, he doesn't care for Trump I thought it was interesting the report circulated he was going to endorse Rubio and then they all walked it back uh, my guess is that he was but they figured it would actually hurt Rubio as he's trying to draw on outsiders so instead he's going to go off and be the guy who who gives it to Trump is it effective no I if it's sustained it could be but a one-off shot like this no so let me ask you about uh, the another sort of current thing that's going on um, in Washington, which is the Supreme Court issue. I surmise, without knowing, <laughs> that you and I have a different view yes, on this. I'm sure we do. Um, and uh, but. Uh, there's a political question that I have. Go ahead and state your case as to why a president who has almost a year left in his term shouldn't replace someone on the Supreme Court. I think the president can offer it up, but I think that the advice and consent power of the Senate means they don't have to consider it. Do you think that it? Uh, do you think that they have any obligation to consider it? No, I don't think they do. Because that's not advice or consent. That's sort of no. I, I, I that's think, sort of absence. Well, I I think it's advising the president not to do it, um, which is a separation of powers issue. I think they have every right to do it, and I think historically there have been instances where the Senate has refused to even consider a nominee. Do you? Uh, but for the Supreme Court. Well, I, I think under, constitutionally, all nominees fall under the advice and sent, uh, consent, and I don't think they have to. There, there is a, so you'd leave this seat vacant probably for fourteen months, probably. Yeah. Um, 
What about the politics of it? Oh, if Republicans cave, I mean, it, it, this would be more the end of the Republican Party than Donald Trump. Because, I mean, going back to Ronald Reagan's election in 1980, the Supreme Court has been the issue of the Republican Party. It comes up in every campaign, presidential campaign. It comes up in every congressional campaign every even numbered year and if the republicans were then to say in this year after years of saying the supreme court hangs in the balance you must vote republican that hey we're going to go through with this it do you be think that over. because my my view at least in my party uh the the uh history has been that People talk about the Supreme Court, but they rarely vote on it. Do you think people on the Republican side yes. vote on the Supreme Court? Uh, pro-lifers in, in the Republican Party, it is a huge issue for them. Because, you know, my view is uh, because of what uh, the Republicans are doing in the Senate that you're going to see, uh, you know, there's, there's been this notion of, of lack of enthusiasm among Democrats, which is kind of normal among a party in its third right. term. I think that this is an issue that could actually energize, oh, I think and particularly minority voters, yeah. young voters. I agree with you, but it's also an issue that will enrage Republicans if, if Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans cave. So one, uh, we, uh, in the state of Illinois, Mark Kirk is a sitting incumbent running for re-election right. on the Republican side. He's already called for yeah. uh, hearings uh, on this. Uh, does that impact him in any way in this election? It may. I, th I mean, that's obviously why he, he's taking a difference is to um, separate himself. Will it hurt him the with the Republicans? I, Mark Kirk is already hurt with Republicans, so it doesn't really matter at this point. Uh, I'm, I'm not aware of any major Republican group other than the Main Street Partnership that will come aggressively to his aid. And do you think that um, because they think he's been too uh, moderate, too... Too liberal, I think they would say, yeah. Uh-huh. I guess it depends on where you <laughs> yes. sit. So what about, uh, and you, you, you think that if, uh, if Toomey or uh, uh, Portman or Ayotte, some of these other endangered incumbents uh, were to stray on this, that they, that they would be punished yes. by Republicans? I, I have no doubt they would be punished by Republicans if they caved on it. No room to move on this. I don't think there really is. Um, the... We, we should wrap up, but I there's one big... We, we sort of hinted at it earlier when you talked about this anger, and um, you see it on the Democratic side, you see it on the Republican side, about the economy, and not about you know the job numbers and so on, but about right. wages and about the ability to work hard and get mm -hmm. ahead. Median income is what it was in 19... Excuse me, 99. Nobody... 90% uh, of Americans haven't gotten a raise in 20 years or so. Right. Um, and this seems to be a function uh, in part to sort of these revolutionary changes in the economy, mm -hmm. technology, globalization. Shouldn't this be something we do something about? I mean, isn't there, we also see this, 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 uh, this yawning gap of this, you know, growing inequality, mm -hmm. growing numbers of poor, right. super wealthy. I mean, it can't be healthy, can it? No, and, and here's my problem with dealing with this situation is, and I think this is where a lot of the anger comes down on as well, is that I think that a major corporation in this country has an easier time going to Washington with a lobbyist and carving out a loophole in legislation to benefit themselves than they do to innovate when they see a competitor coming. And they can use Congress to crush a competitor. Uh, and so the free market really isn't working because the free market doesn't exist. And I think the free market to a I don't, degree I don't, with uh, these I don't necessarily disagree yeah, with you on it, that. But it, so the problem is... And for, in a weird way, if you listen to his rhetoric and can pick through it, I mean, Donald Trump has sort of picked up yeah, on that theme as well. Very much so. Um and so I, I wouldn't trust Washington to do anything but make the situation worse. Uh, I don't think it's a. I don't think it is a coincidence that income inequality started going up again in this country when Republicans and Democrats together started tinkering with the tax code in the '90s. Um, I think the wealthy have really benefited more than anyone else because they can hire lobbyists that I can't hire because I don't have the means to do it. What about tinkering like what Ronald Reagan did in uh, expanding the earned income tax credit so people yes, who work hard can? Rubio can, has uh, argued for. Yeah. Well, um, I just. My problem with doing that is and the Obama tax code. Is, as well, by yeah, the, way, it, it, Don't the tax code. The no, no, no. I, I understand. the The tax code itself has become so complex. 
that one, it stifles innovation and stifles growth. It hurts small businesses. And unless both parties are willing to rebuild the tax code almost from the ground up, uh, it's only going to make the situation worse. And I don't think there is a desire on either side to sit down and go through that level of comprehensive reform of the tax code. And I don't think there's enough trust on either side to do it. And in terms of in- income insec- uh, income uh, security, I'm sorry, retirement security, health care security, and so on, uh, you think there's, there's no approach that we as a society should take uh, on those issues? I don't know. Um, and I'm sure there are proposals out there that I haven't read. Um, but I just say, I, I hate to sound like a broken record, but I don't trust Washington with these issues. And I don't, I don't trust the Republicans with these issues. Um, I disagree with the Democrats on an approach that would require government intervention, but I don't trust the Republicans. It's um, amazing how much that attitude comes up in, Repu- like you look at right. these exit polls, I don't trust Republicans. Yeah, uh, you know, I say all the time when, when people call into my radio show and they attack the president, uh, I disagree with the president, but the president's kept his promises. He's done what he said he wanted to do. Republicans haven't. Um, the uh, If Donald Trump is the nominee of the uh, Republican Party, what happens to the Republican Party in this election, and how does the Republican Party move forward? <laughs> we will soon see how shameless members of the parties are, uh, particularly the Republican Party, how many people will suddenly become Donald Trump's best friend, even though for years they've been ideologically opposed to everything he's standing for, and they'll just try to wait him out. It, it'll be like 1980 to a degree, uh, not comparing him to Reagan, but that the party establishment that loathed Reagan just waited him out for eight years and then came back in. Um, I think that the Republicans are very much like the Bourbons of France. They've learned nothing and forgotten nothing. And do you think Trump could win? I don't think he can. I mean, demographically, I don't think Donald Trump can win the presidency. Um, He will pull some blue-collar white voters from Hillary Clinton. He'll scare the hell out of Hispanic, Asian, and black voters. There will be upper-income Republican voters who will go to Hillary Clinton. So where does he build a ground game? I, I don't think he can. Well, Eric Erickson, we should get together again after the election and see how <laughs> prophetic either it. of us were. Happy to. We can also destroy the, the recording if it turns out <laughs> yes. really badly. But it's a pleasure to, to have you here. We don't agree on su- stuff, but I so appreciate having a conversation with you. Thanks Nick. for having me. And thank you for being a, a, a speaker at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. That's the, the kind of discourse that we want to have. Uh, on our campus. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.